Good morning. A while ago, someone reached out and said, Mia, can you talk about love? I said, okay, I'll do my best. You, know, you, don't, you don't talk about love enough. Can you talk about love? I said, okay, okay. I, I, I will flip through the Bible and find all the times that love comes up. And they said, you know, there's some other church up the street. They're talking about love and marriage, biblical love. I said, you sure you want to go there? I mean, we can start with Abram and Sarah and, and their mistress that they got pregnant. I don't know about that. Um, uh, David and Bathsheba. Yes, yes, yes. He sent her husband to war so that he could have her to himself. No, I don't know. That's, that's not the love that they were. Homer, Gomer and Hosea, that love. Yes, yes, yes. God, God tells him to marry a promiscuous woman. That biblical love? And their children are cursed. No, 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 this is, that's too negative, Mia, that's too negative. So let's talk about love, the good stuff. Makes us feel good, warm and fuzzy inside, makes us want to go off and get a mimosa after church. <laughs> love, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and if I have all the faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all of my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You want me to tell you that this is the gospel, the good news, even though it technically isn't. It is a letter written by Paul, the Roman you know who used to murder Jews while his comrades held his jacket. You want me to tell you that this is the way of Christ, perhaps maybe even some sort of pacifist view of how we should relate to one another and the world, a view that is conflict-free, a view that is void of righteous anger. We should just all love each other, a view that does not call us out of ourselves to a greater assignment that benefits somebody other than ourselves, a view that is individualistic, centered around this flattened idea of love, around positivity, around peacemaking, a view that doesn't have strong opinions about inequality, that doesn't rock the boat or call out the absurdities of the world. Just keep talking about love, whatever that word means. Just keep quietly patching up the bullet wounds with Band-Aids. 
We don't want to hear about the blood and the gore, which is ironic given that we claim to follow a man who was beaten while hanging on a tree, and we celebrate it every year with Easter eggs. But yes, love. Let's talk about it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This passage is popular. I know most of you have heard it a few times at some weddings. Maybe you've seen it in someone's home on one of those watercolor paintings of clouds that have scriptures written in it and Jesus's feet in the sand and things like that. We meet Paul in this passage as he writes to the Corinthian congregation, a community obsessed with upward mobility and individuality. They are the educated elite, engrossed with status and social connections, a lot like many of us today in the Christian church. The Corinthians have become a bit preoccupied, disinterested in setting the captives free, as Jesus had sought to do. They care more about power economics and upholding the bourgeoisie class. They care more about debating philosophy than dismantling tangible systems that are keeping the least of these bound, like many church folks today who care more about paintings on the wall, subjective aesthetics, what people are wearing, how people walk through the sanctuary. Their distractions and divisions had consumed them. Some Corinthians believed this and others believed that. Some thought that this was immoral, others thought that that was immoral. If Paul was mad about the divisions in the Corinthian church, imagine what he'd think of us and our pettiness with each other about the little things that have nothing to do with Jesus. Paul goes on to clear up some of those arguments with the church at Corinth. Arguments about what to eat and how to eat it. Arguments about sex. By the time he gets to chapter 13, I imagine that Paul is exhausted, merely trying to offer a breath to himself and the people at Corinth. Professor Boykin Sanders suggests that Paul seeks redirection of the Corinthians through his meditation on love, the purpose of which is to get the Corinthians to move beyond debates about spiritual gifts and focus on the real task of the church, you know, proclaiming good news to the poor and setting the captives free, all the stuff that Jesus talked about. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not insist on its own way. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. Love hopes all things. Love is a flat word. Flattened by the limitations of the English language, to talk about this love out of context is to lean into a vacuum of foolish fantasies, of kumbaya circles and romantic rendezvous while asylum seekers drown at the borders. No, this can't be the love of Christ. Love, so many people use your name in vain, music soul child sang. 
Many of us refuse to admit that we don't have the linguistic capacity to talk about what 1 Corinthians 13 is actually calling us to. And so we pontificate on precocious points of view. We seek out this limited understanding of love because it feels good in our bellies. The Greeks, however, were better at describing love. In the original language of the New Testament, there are several words for love that mean different things. There's philia, the word most commonly related to brotherly love, platonic love. There's storge, storge, the word associated with familial love, the love that a parent might have with a child or for a child. There's my favorite, eros, romantic and passionate love. However, none of these words are used in this passage. The word for love used over and over again is agape. Agape is regarded as the highest form of love. Agape transcends the self. It is a noble love for others that goes beyond romantic or erotic implications. It is a gracious act that expects nothing in return. It is a call to self-sacrifice. It is a demand to share wealth and surplus without question or qualification, without a tax deduction. It is a call to relinquish power. Better translated, agape is not to love. Agape is to share. Agape is to care for. It is not about marriage or romance. It is not permission to ignore the atrocities of this world. It is, in fact, a demand to lean further into the act of confronting those atrocities as caring for the other. Thus, the passage can be translated, caring for is patient. Caring for is kind. Caring for is not boastful or arrogant or rude. Caring for rejoices in the truth, even if it's a difficult truth. Caring for hopes all things. Caring for endures all things. Caring for never ends. Professor Mark Etling writes about the awakening around agape during his time at a Catholic parish in St. Louis. He says, over time, the meaning of agape has been domesticated, stripped of its linkage to justice. We have become accustomed to thinking of agape only as charity, the donation of time, talent, treasure to meet the immediate needs of the poor. By saying this, I don't mean to denigrate in any way the work of charity, he says. That work is appropriate, needed, and virtuous, but it is not enough. The act of caring for demands much more of the Jesus follower. It is about advocating for and sacrificing for those trapped in the quicksand of marginalization. It is about examining our habits of consumption and not holding on to more than we need. Agape, caring for, says basic, flattened understandings of love that is void of justice is not enough. 
In fact, it is malpractice to have you believe that love is enough. In a world where nonprofits fight over the same dollars year after year to provide basic needs to those this country has swept under the rug. It's not enough. Agape caring for should make us ask the serious, hard, difficult questions about our society. Why are they hungry? Why are they houseless? Why are they wading through five feet deep waters with children on their shoulders in 105 degree weather? We would be unwise to call ourselves agape people and not ask why, to not ask more of ourselves and our communities. When speaking on the agape economy, Bishop Julio Murray suggests that the point is not only having an answer, but making sure we ask the question. When the church embraces difficult questions, the potential exists for meaningful growth. So you want us to talk about love. You want to practice agape? You start by embracing difficult questions. Why are they tired? Why are they angry? Why am I tired, tired of hearing about inequality, tired of witnessing the disparities? This passage is not merely a meditation written by a man who, even after his conversion, sat in a position of privilege and power. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a mission statement. It is not a mantra, a meditative checklist that is supposed to make us feel good and more holy. What a privilege it is to be able to meditate at all amidst this ungodly devastation that surrounds us. We have to ask the difficult questions or else we're just regurgitating something Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. Why are they hopeless? Why are their uniforms dirty when they come to school? Why are they being evicted in a pandemic? But asking the questions that Agape beckons of us isn't easy. It opens us up to criticism. It provokes some people to conspire in the shadows about shutting us up because the questioning threatens their capital comforts. Bishop Desmond Tutu says it best, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask the question why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. The difficult questions that agape should draw out of us are hard and force us to look at ourselves in the mirror, not always loving what we see. But difficult, difficult questions can also be patient. Difficult questions are what kindness is made of. Difficult questions bear all things. Difficult questions endure all things. And the difficult questions should never end, no matter how tired we get. The day after Independence Day in 1852, Frederick Douglass gave a keynote address where he asked a difficult question. What, 
He says, to the slave is the 4th of July. Paraphrasing, I imagine he's saying, what is life? Liberty and the pursuit of happiness to those who are chained and confined to areas of land, to those who are imprisoned. What is freedom to the unfree? I desire to ask a similar difficult question this morning, one that has lingered in the crevices of my mind since the despicable images of violence and neglect at the southern border of this country came out earlier this week. What to the refugee is 1 Corinthians 13? What to the asylum seeker is agape? What to the Afghan and Haitian parents desperate for a better life for their children is love? Is love patient? Is love kind? In a world where give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free is a lie. Maybe that's the problem, patience. Maybe that's it. Trying to make the act of caring for others a patient act in a world where every second counts in the face of cruelty. There is no room for patience when folks are fleeing war-torn and environmentally devastated countries in search of safety. What does kindness toward folks who are treating those who are in distress inhumanely even look like? Is there room for that? What to the refugee is 1 Corinthians 13? In a world where envy and arrogance and rudeness helps you climb social and political ladders, does love even exist? What is agape? Where is agape? Where is the caring for? Where is the advocating for? What to the parent wading through rivers with their child strapped to their chest is 1 Corinthians 13? What to the man sleeping in his car because minimum wage is not enough to afford adequate housing in this city is 1 Corinthians 13. In an affluent country that revels in wrongdoing and negates the truth of inequity, a country that has wiped out the middle class and left many communities impoverished, where is the agape? What to the chronically oppressed and disenfranchised and marginalized is 1 Corinthians 13. Where is the forgiveness of debt that Jesus taught us to pray about? Where is the disruption of the status quo? Etling reminds us that agape does not allow us to tolerate the status quo. It is difficult, uncomfortable, and challenging. It often is a bitter pill, but it is a necessary pill for disciples of Jesus to swallow if the world is to become what God has intended. Beloved, I don't have many answers for you today. My truth-telling only comes as far as this. Truth-asking questions, 
My only hope is that you will ask the difficult questions alongside me. These passages we venerate, this ideal we have of love that we so desperately want to lean into must be met with a questioning that considers the material conditions of others. There is no pretty bow on this sermon about love. Instead, I am calling you into the opportunity to reimagine it, to reimagine the agape as a deepening of the call to walk humbly and righteously with God and with each other. When we ask the difficult questions that agape begs of us, we are embracing possibility. Possibility of long-standing effective change in our communities, the possibility of seeing God's beloved community come into place. No answers, just questions that burst open our imaginations of what love can really look like for each and every one of us, especially the least of these. This is the agape call. A call to question, a call to be curious, not a call to meditate or recite mantras, but to say, I will not give up the fight until all of us are free. Amen.